they were valued at $400 million, which now seems like so much money because Vice is getting sold for almost half that. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Wednesday, May 24th. Today, I'm joined by Puck's Lauren Sherman to talk about everything that's going on with the fashion media business, from the future of Refinery29 after the Vice Media bankruptcy to the succession drama at WSJ Magazine. All that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, subbing in for Peter, and joined here on Zoom by the peerless fashion business correspondent, Lauren Sherman. Hey there. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. Lauren, I wanted to have you on, not just to talk about the business of fashion, but specifically the business of fashion media, which, you know, like the rest of the industry, sort of went through this slow motion extinction event in 2008. There was a decade-long identity crisis with everyone from Glamour and InStyle and Marie Claire going digital and ad money is consolidating around a few AAA titles. And it's really only beginning now to sort of shake out what this landscape is going to look like going forward for everybody else. So I want to get into what's going on at WSJ Magazine. But let's start with Refinery29 because this, for a little while, I think, was sort of one of the rare success stories from the past couple of years in terms of new digital media brands in fashion. And then it, it got bought by Vice Media in 2019, sort of <laughs> crushed inside the colossus of that company as they were circling the drain. Vice has now gone bankrupt and is getting sold for pennies on the dollar to a couple big investment firms. Do you have a sense of what's going on inside Refinery29 itself right now and whether there's any hope for a comeback under new ownership? Yeah, so it's interesting because Refinery is sort of the... If you if you think about Vice and BuzzFeed being these disruptors that came in and then and were supposed to change media and become the marquee media brands of the future, and then suddenly the New York Times is really the only one that's been able to figure things out using a lot of of the tools that BuzzFeed and Vice and other places like that set up and and now these future looking media brands are kind of screwed. It, Refinery is a microcosm in that way. It's sort of the fashion example of that. It was founded in 2006 and it, it started as like, I, I think they did shopping guides. It, it had tons of iterations, but I'd say by 2010, 2011, it had really established itself as a leading voice in lifestyle and fashion media in particular. And the the legacy fashion publications, the legacy women's or or lifestyle women's interest publications didn't really have anything 
going on up until then. So Refinery was sort of the leader. They led on the way the the content was distributed. Their newsletters, we talk about newsletters constantly, obviously here at Puck, but everywhere. The way that their newsletters were packaged and even the subject lines, it was just super, super sharp. And they became the leading example of how to do it, the internet for women's content. And not only did they raise a ton, a ton of money, with, and they had a huge, a huge valuation themselves, but they also were the leaders for these other businesses and, and the glamours and the in-styles of the world really copied what Refinery did. They were valued at $400 million, which now seems like so much money because Vice is getting sold for almost half that to investors. I presume that was still a successful exit for them, right? Like, like investors had not put in four hundred million dollars. The the, the, the yeah, founding team it, must have done pretty well. Yeah, there. they well, yeah, they made some money. Although on the vice bankruptcy filing, they still owe Justin one of Justin Stefano, one of the founders, five hundred thousand dollars from that. So, I guess they, I'm sure they did okay. But <laughs> generally, it wasn't as high as they had expected. But it was a fine exit. For, for everything they did for 15 years of work, etc. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up this question of voice and differentiation, because that does seem like an industry-wide problem for the fashion media industry. Of course, there used to be a big enough audience and enough advertising dollars to support a pretty complex ecosystem of magazines with, honestly, you know, there was a fair amount of demographic overlap. And then, you know, Refinery comes on the scene as a digital-first, digital-native millennial fashion website, and it was genuinely doing something very different in terms of being a more voicey, internet-y editorial product. But then, of course, all the legacy publications come in, they basically copy that success, and so you end up with something more homogenized across all these different brands. So when they were bought by Vice, the idea was that Vice has a woman problem. Most media companies are able to court advertisers through their female audiences, consumer spenders, et cetera, et cetera. They weren't able to do that. Vice wasn't able to do that on the female side of things. It was very male skewed. But the main thing was that it was supposed to round out the portfolio. But what I ended up talking to a bunch of executives, people on the Vice side, people on the refinery side, and the main challenge, and this happens with with any company where the publisher, the person selling the product doesn't really get the product, or there's just not good connection between the person making the content and the person selling the content. And Refinery came in, 2020 was crazy with the pandemic, everybody lost advertising, but they were also caught in the middle of Black Lives Matter and all the workplace culture stuff that was coming about. Their their chief content officer ended up leaving the business that year amid a bunch of controversy. So they were challenged in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, it also seems like Vice didn't really understand or think carefully about how to evolve that brand once they bought it. Yeah, like obviously it rounds out the portfolio. But after that, now what? You know, how are you going to make it different when so many of their competitors in the market are sort of converging towards the same point of view? On top of that, it didn't feel like everyone in the business at the top of the business really knew how to sell refinery or even sell digital. I thought that it might have been a thing where they were used to selling to advertisers who wanted to target men and, and there was just a different way. But one executive on the refinery side said to me, no, the real issue was that 
they didn't really understand how to sell digital and digital is a really iterative product. Another vice executive said to me, not only did they not know how to sell the story of refinery, but they also didn't know how to sell the story of the whole group together. And so it just became challenging from an advertising perspective. And then on top of all of that, all of Vice's you know, financing issues and just owing people a lot of money and not growing as fast. So refinery is sort of a microcosm for all this stuff that we've been hearing about in media. And the interesting thing to me has been in the coverage of Vice, refinery barely gets mentioned. And it's A, it's a big part of the business. They have shrunk it significantly. Post-COVID, the operations shrunk by 80%. Traffic went down by 50%. So it's just it's sort of a nothing now, which it's strange because it was a big part of culture. They had a lot of live events prior to to COVID and people would go out for it. You could get a refinery home goods line at Target as recently as 2020. It became a big enough brand that they were able to do that sort of marketing and, and have people interested and engaged. But now it's going to be hard for them and refinery has to compete against the in-styles of the world, the who, what, wears of the world, which never really maintain their, the who, what, wears of the world, which maintain their status as digital disruptors, et cetera, and were able to sell to a company in a couple of years ago. And, and so, and then they also Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and, all of it. There's just, there isn't really, and there's less advertising than there used to be. Advertisers are mostly putting that money towards digital channels where they can go to direct to the consumer. So I think it's going to be, it's going to be really hard for them. And it's just, it's kind of sad to see this brand that really became something solid over a period of 10 years, which is not easy feel so fleeting and, and almost, almost dead at this point. Is refinery itself actually profitable right now? Cause I know you'd done some reporting on this the other week and it sounded a little unclear sort of how they were defining profitability, but there is a, a sliver of hope there economically. Yeah. I, I feel like every single time ever, I mean, they're probably not now if all the advertisers are backing out, but when I spoke to people there a week and a half ago, I feel like every single time I talk to someone, they tell me they're profitable. And then they say after they tell me that profitable, but investing in the future. So I guess if you really did the math, you could technically be profitable. They were adamant that they were profitable. I heard from people in other parts of the vice business that they were not, and these people would have that information. So it is possible. And they're a much smaller operation than they were. They reduced their operations by 80% since COVID. So it is possible that they are profitable. What that means in this world, like, I don't know what profitable means when you owe people a bunch of money, (laughs) especially in fashion. I'm just constantly dealing with people saying that they're profitable and me trying to understand, well, what do you actually mean by that? And then finding out that it's not totally true. But there's a there's a decent, uh, potentially solid core business there. Presumably some of the, the, the kinks will be worked out in this buyout from these two investment firms that have come in. They're, they're going to pay off whatever remaining debts are on the books to this founder, for instance. And yeah. then, of course, there's a possibility it can get flipped to another buyer. For sure. It has that core DNA or what have you. And then also 
it is a very important brand to millennials and Gen Z who are the big consumers right now that marketers are trying to target. And so, sure, I think that they have potential, but at the same time, so much of this is moving. They are they're they have a show on Twitch, they're doing well on TikTok, they're doing well on Instagram. So much of that sort of lifestyle content are moving to those channels. So it's just what is the what does the business look like right now? And and I do think there is an opportunity if you look at someone like a Jay Pensky who's mostly invested in trades but took a 20% stake in Vox and owns Rolling Stone. I could see he likes to buy things that are cheap, but also valuable. And I could see him buying it and it making sense in that portfolio. There's also the guy who owns Bustle Digital Group. I I think that's less yeah, likely Brian because Goldberg. there's so much Brian Goldberg. Yes, there's so much overlap with his other properties. And he has also closed some properties. He obviously closed Gawker and maybe he wouldn't want it. He, he's a great example of a publisher who really took the refinery model and blew it out. And they've done really well with, they kind of have the extreme version. They do do reported stories, but they do a lot of those SEO generated explainers. And I think that's the other thing. Like if AI is going to change all of this and SEO doesn't really matter anymore, all the things that refinery did super well, don't matter as much. Maybe there is enough brand loyalty to get people interested, but I don't know. It's it's kind of sad what happened to it. Yeah, that that's a terrifying thought that you ha- might have chat GPT trained on aughts era bloggy fashion writing and, and just, yeah. just replicating it all. Um, Lauren, let's take a quick break. And then when we get back, I want to talk about WSJ Magazine. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, welcome back. Lauren, you've been breaking news and following all the gossip and speculation surrounding WSJ Magazine, which is sort of this luxury, glossy insert that's at the Journal and where the editor-in-chief, Christina O'Neill, 
was sort of suddenly and unceremoniously ousted by her new boss who just come in a few months earlier. Any inside drama there behind her getting kicked out or was it just sort of time for a change? I talked about this a bit with Peter a couple of weeks ago. I think it's it really has to do with budget reduction and also there being need for a change. Christina is a, a rare talent, I would say, but she's been there for 10 years. It was expensive to run that magazine. It wasn't always profitable. And what I'm hearing generally about what Emma Tucker's doing at the journal is just sort of reducing cost across the board and at the same time trying to focus the purpose of the journal a bit. So it it makes sense. The, the interesting thing about what's happening there is it definitely sounds like it's going to be an internal candidate and it's probably going to be one of two people who work at WSJ right now, Sarah Ball, who runs the digital and she's the editor of the Style News Desk, which is a new initiative that Christina launched a couple years ago, where they're doing much more online content, whereas the magazine used to just be the print stories online, which feels like something magazines did 20 years ago. And Sarah has been based in London, I think since COVID. And so she also has a lot of contacts within that part of the business and and so she seems really well positioned to take over. And then the other big person is Rory Citran, who is the fashion director of the journal overall. And also just the thing she's really well known for is she has a column there. She covers all the shows. Her column performs really, really well. She's extremely ambitious and smart. And I could see her leapfrogging a bunch of other people and really getting that job. I would not be shocked in any way. I also threw out Dale Robbie, who is the off-duty editor. I don't know him that well, but I know him a little, and that's not really his vibe to like vie for things. But he is really good in that section off-duty that he runs, which is like the weekend fun section. It performs really well. And so... I don't know. If I were Emma Tucker, I would think about it. But yeah, it's been interesting. I love writing about media because journalists love to talk. So it's been a it's been a fun one to cover. Also, there aren't many outlets that would cover it so closely. And I mean, it's a bummer for Christina, but I do think all good things must come to an end. I'll I'll be interested to see a if they keep it as at 10 issues a year because they're, they're definitely, there's definitely the advertising, but the budgets that it takes to produce a magazine, a print magazine that many times a year, it maybe doesn't add up. And so Sarah makes sense if they're going to focus more on digital and try to grow the advertising revenue on the digital side. Rory makes sense from a, she's just a really sharp person and I could see being able to to really knock it out of the park. So it'll be interesting if I don't think it's going to be an outside person. I presume that that is also part of Emma Tucker's cost-cutting mission, that if you, if you bring someone up internally, you absolutely do not have to pay them as much money as the person they are replacing at the top of the masthead, which is a trend we've seen play out across the entire media industry, and particularly in print publications, not just in fashion, but everywhere. Totally. And they did post the job about a week ago and and the job the salary range for the job was 140 to 440 i think and 
I know how much a lot of the reporters in that section are making. I don't think it's going to be 140, but that is offensive. Just given what... Yeah, no, no, we, we should say, I mean, like, one, 140 is an incredible salary in many parts of the world. It's definitely on the very, very low end for an editor-in-chief title at, at, a New York, at a prestigious New York fashion magazine. Yes, and, and just to give you a range at these kinds of places, the Journal as a Union, New York Times, Bloomberg, these types of places... Reporters at those places are making over six figures and and not super senior. I would say mid-level reporters. They're not often making over 200, but they're definitely making in the range of 140. And so the idea that the person that was running this whole magazine would be making what like most reporters are making at, at a publication, it seems a little bit crazy to me that they posted that. It's not good branding for the, for the job, that's for sure. Lauren, the last question I wanted to ask you, you made this great point the other day that there's really been an entire generation of sort of 40-something-ish editors in the world who have been cycling in and out faster than they used to, definitely faster than their predecessors who would be at the top of the masthead for decades at a time. Do you think that's just because fashion tastes are now changing faster than they used to? Or is it more about the volatility of the media industry itself? It's a combination of both. But when you look at, if you think about Christina O'Neill and Laura Brown, who was the editor-in-chief of InStyle for a few years, they were both, I think they were co-executive editors at Harper's Bazaar. They worked for Glenda Bailey, who was there for like 15 years. And the world just moves so much more quickly now that you do need a new point of view more quickly. But I also think these jobs, they're just not as exciting or as interesting as they once were, because magazines themselves don't have as much of a cultural influence. And so if you're the people who are, I'd say, 45 plus kind of grew up making magazines, it's very rare. I think Will Welch, who's a bit younger, I think he's probably around 40, but he is the editor of GQ. He's a good example of someone who has figured it out, I'd say, more than anyone yeah, else. I mean, I'm sure job. it's not perfect, but he has. He took GQ from being this mass title that was supposed to help every guy in America get dressed to being a niche title that is helping a fashion fan get dressed. And I, that's really attractive to advertisers. They just did this big event in New York, the Creativity Awards, and he had Tim Cook from Apple came and all these really famous people. Well, Will Welch like really put his finger on like where the culture was going, right? Like he he identified that like black culture was really sort of like a locus of where men's fashion was moving, that the real fashion influencers were athletes, they were rappers, they were actors. He he really like moved in a new direction away from sort of the, the, the J. Crew Esquire look that had dominated in like the 2000s into the early 2010s. That was a really different direction. But it also goes back to what you were saying at the beginning of our conversation about Refinery29, that sort of the... Um, um, that the cautionary tale of their success is that as soon as you define a new voice, as soon as you define a new editorial vision that's really successful, all your peers in that space are going to flock to it. They're going to replicate it. They're, they're going to copy the voice or they're going to copy the look. And eventually the, the product becomes homogenized across the industry. You have to take big chances and you've got to do something different if you're going to break out of that. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and when you look across the board, the other kind of traditional magazine that I think is really interesting is Town and Country. I think Stellene 
Volandis has done a really good job with that as well in targeting. Again, it's like you need to target. It, it can't be for everybody anymore. And that for, it can't be for everyone anymore. And that's the thing that a generation of magazine editors were trying to make something that would appeal to everyone. And that just doesn't, it doesn't work anymore unless you work at the New York times, I guess, but not T magazines, not for everyone. So it doesn't, it's just not the way media works anymore. And it was a whole generation that was trained in that sense. And so it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. I think there's going to be more magazine closures. There's going to be more, there was a rumor going around the internet the other day that Bon Appetit was closing. It, there's just going to, it's not, <laughs> but, um, but it, I, I, this is not the end of it, but you're right. The refinery thing is sort of, it's sort of a nail in the coffin of that first generation of women's and fashion content online and what the next iteration of that all looks like is that I definitely don't know but I hope it's fun for some people who make new things <laughs> Lauren we've got to leave it there but thanks so much for joining me um, this is a fascinating conversation it's so interesting to see how all of this is evolving and playing out in real time we'll have you back on soon to keep talking about it thanks for having me Ben thanks so much for listening to another episode of the powers that be as a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.